I specialize in the uncanny, strange events, unlikely sightings, stories. But there are occurrences in this world, Maud, that you most people do are this. unprepared to accept. Whatever he said, whatever he promised you, some of those occurrences are fairy tales. Others. What makes well, you think there is real as you his promise to you? No one will ever believe you a word you say. They'll call you well, a lunatic, a broken a mass man murderer. Is a hard thing to fix. Say, Maud, he looked pretty How would you well like busted. to go to Europe? There's only one way out of this. The mysterious tongue of Dr. Vermilion and other stories. The first Elizabeth Crown saga, now available on audiobook. Begin the adventure today on Audible and iTunes. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Carnival of Fire, Episode 6. The sight of the cattle car nauseated me. I arrived ten minutes early because I was nervous and couldn't tarry any longer. The area was empty. It was lunchtime and the carnies were far away, lining up for stew. I looked around, praying Eugene would keep his promise. True, he had frightened me and he had exposed me as a hypocrite, and he had left me with no other choice. But I wanted to believe in his goodness. The Carnies had damaged him, but maybe he wasn't entirely broken. As I approached, something caught my eye. It was a burlap sack lying on the ground. It was a plain yellow color and bore no lettering but the inside of the sack was full. I trotted over and took it in my hands. I unfastened its string and tore the opening wide. The money was piled within, just as Eugene had promised. Maybe not all the money, but thousands of bills at least, enough cash to last me a lifetime. I swooned with relief. And then I heard it, a slow creaking behind me. At first, it didn't register. The sound was vaguely familiar, like the whine of an old boat. I turned slowly around. I saw the cattle car with its long steel slats. The double doors were fallen open. The latch had been removed and the softest breeze was nudging the doors apart. I stepped forward, startled by the sight of horses within. Their round black eyes stared back at me, and their legs shifted and bent. All at once, the horses jerked with understanding. They jostled toward the open doorway, and then they spilled out a cascade of hooves and manes, galloping into fresh air. I braced myself, too frightened to budge. I felt the hot wind of their bodies as they stampeded past me. Dust erupted all around, stinging my eyes. 
I fell to my knees, rubbing tears from my face. I was deafened by the piercing whinnies and clatter of horseshoes. The horses scattered all around, darting in every direction at once. I heard men shouting, women screamed, workers charged in my direction. I could only cough in the yellow cloud, blind and panting and penitent. When I finally pried open my eyes, I saw old Cletus hovering above me. A half dozen laborers congregated around, chewing toothpicks and holding ropes and tools. And what have we here? Old Cletus seethed. Look alive, boys. Seems we have ourselves a rustler. And that is how I found myself in a cage, tied to a chair, while the strong man worked me over. The cage was left over from years past, when the circus used to own a lion. The lion died of sickness or senility, but the empty cage remained, hauled from one town to the next, in the hopes that a new lion might one day occupy it. The workmen dragged the cage into a nearby field, far from the other carnies, and they threw me inside. They bound my ankles to the chair's legs with twine, and they tied my wrists to the chair's back. I could neither stand nor lean forward. I was defenseless before the strong man's fists. <coughs> I have never liked to fight, but I can take a punch. Years of sleeping rough and drinking hard have toughened me. The strong man struck my jaw. He punched my stomach. He hit my ear until it rang like a firehouse bell. My face was filmed with blood. My eye puffed up until I could hardly see. Oh, I could endure the pain. I could have cussed at them, laughed in their faces, asked if those playful love taps were all they had. But now was no time for heroics. I had to misdirect them. So I whimpered and pleaded. I insisted on my innocence. I said I'd tell them anything. I played the coward because I knew that's what they wanted and it would expedite their torture. Where'd you find this here money, boy? Demanded old Cletus. I stole it, I said. I stole it from a bank. Did you check the safe? Growled the strong man. To make sure he didn't filter it from you? Now why would I lie about that? I cried. I'm a bank robber, you hear? I stole it from a vault in Louisiana. That's why I hopped your train. To get away from there, aren't you listening? Well, said old Cletus with a brutish chuckle, it seems you made a tactical error. But tell me again, why do you set those horses free? I tell you, I didn't, I insisted. It wasn't me. That was just a coincidence. That is a coincidence, said old Cletus. He's hiding something, posited the strong man. I sighed 
and blood flecked from my lip. All right, then. You want the truth? I think the boy did it. Eugene Blinker. He took the money from my tent. He said he'd give it back, which he did. But he also framed me. He took the latch out of the cattle car doors, and it was only a matter of time before those horses broke loose. Eugene, said old Cletus thoughtfully. Eugene Blinker. That snotty little scallywag. If I thought he had the brains to pull off a scheme like that, I'd be half inclined to believe you. But he doesn't, so I'm not. You must be joking, I cried. That boy's a goddamn genius. Haven't you heard him talk? He's the brightest boy I ever met. He's making fools of us right now, don't you see? Well, said old Cletus, dusting his hands. Now I know you're lying. That boy's just a good-for-nothing orphan. You picked the wrong patsy to pin this on, Mr. Thibodeau. Then old Cletus turned sideways, and his eyes fell upon Cassius. What shall we do with this fellow? We have here a liar, a stowaway, and an admitted thief. What sort of discipline seems just? I had never seen Cassius up close. I had never even heard his voice. He was a mysterious figure who only appeared in the ring. Yet now, Cassius sat in a chair opposite me. His legs spread wide, his hands clasped in front of him. He leaned forward contemplatively, glaring at me with his hateful eyes. His single lock of hair fell to one side, and his shaven scalp glistened in the torchlight. I have always had a desire, whispered Cassius in an eely voice, to watch an animal eat a man alive. I scoffed. I even laughed. The hell you say, I retorted. What kind of nonsense is that? Cassius was stone silent as he rose from his chair. He stepped toward me, his enormous belt buckle congruent with my swollen eye. His naked torso was covered in tattoos, dark and serpentine, a knot of dragons and snakes and lizards, which scrolled up and down his arms and chest, exaggerating the breadth of his shoulders. We have a show to perform, Cassius said slowly. And when that show is over, I'll come back here. I'll open the door to this cage, and I'll let my tiger in. I'll seal you both inside and watch what happens. If he lets you live till daybreak, we'll set you free. If not... He reached out a hand and groped my long and greasy hair. He yanked my head back, and I felt the bones crackle in my neck. But know this, when you tremble, when you weep, when you soil yourself, I will be here feasting on your fear, because I have never watched an animal devour a man while he still lives. 
tonight. I'd like to see that. Trapped in that cage, I could think of nothing but escape. I forgot about Eugene. I even forgot about the money. All I cared about was breaking free of that enclosure, finding Georgiana, and fleeing into the night. For that hour, I was confined and alone, far from the big top and its gory denouement. But in hindsight, I know what happened. I have put the pieces together, and I can see how this awful story ended the way it did. Even now, years later, it takes all my strength and courage to recount that evening, to truly see how events transpired. Eugene did unlock those cattle doors. Then he hid himself among the train cars while the horses ran amuck. The carnies chased those mares all over the fairgrounds, cornering them, lassoing their necks, and dragging them back to their stables. It was slow and arduous work, and the men exhausted themselves in the abysmal Mexican heat. They rounded up most of the steeds, though surely some escaped to run wild in the desert hills. As the anarchy ensued and every carne was occupied, Eugene slipped out of the train. He crossed the empty grounds and slithered into the big top. That is where he found his can of kerosene. The smell of kerosene is noxious, but Eugene didn't need much. The wood was old and dry. Perhaps he used a paintbrush to spread it on the planks. Or maybe he dribbled it from the can's spout. However he applied the acrid fuel, Eugene spread it liberally. Then he went to the tiger's cage, which stood behind the tent. The cage was always covered with a dark blanket so that passers-by would not think to taunt the wild cat. Eugene peeled the blanket back, and when the tiger approached him, he spritzed it with the liquid until its fur was moist. Eugene walked away from the big top, satisfied with his work. He went back to the train, and there he did the worst thing of all. He knocked on Georgiana's door. She opened it, surprised to see the teenage boy before her. He flashed his eerie smile, and then he drew a pistol. My pistol, the same derringer those robbers had given me. He ordered her to sit on the bed, and then he threw her a rope. Frightened, Georgiana did as she was told. She tied her own legs to the vanity chair, and then she sat there as Eugene entwined her hands and stuffed an old kerchief in her mouth. She was helpless then, hoping that Eugene would simply rob her of her jewelry and vanish into the night. But he didn't. He stayed. He opened a bag and drew out ropes and pulleys. He set to work, stringing the cords across the room 
fastening them to axle wheels and building his contraption. He looked giddy as he did so. He hummed to himself, chuckled a little, but said no coherent words. At last, he stepped back, admired his work, and heaved a great sigh. Eugene looked at Georgiana with satiated eyes, and then he leaned toward her. Georgiana struggled and whined, but when Eugene pressed a clammy hand against her cheek, she froze. And then he winked, and Georgiana nearly choked on her muffled scream. Tickets did not sell well that night. Visitors were spread out along the bleachers, and their hubbub was subdued. This was the first show in Mexico, and although many of the carnies had toured south of the border, they were wary of their guests. The atmosphere was tense already, what with the runaway horses, but the presence of campesinos unnerved them further. Families huddled together in their white cotton trousers, patterned dresses, belted ponchos, wide sombreros, and scarves of many colors. Some looked anxious and expectant. Others were withdrawn. The Spanish conversation was low and intermittent, and the heat inside the big top filled them all with languor. The player piano played. The juggler juggled his hatchets. The pantomime performed his physical comedy, but the penguins were too overheated to take the stage. Old Cletus entered the ring, and he raised his hands in welcome, but the ovation was half-hearted. The clapping was polite. There was no whistling, no hoots and cheers. Old Cletus spoke his monologue in English, which none of the Mexicans seemed to understand, and it was only when the orchestra struck up that any of the audience leaned forward. Even then, the spectators looked skeptical, as if uncertain where God had put them. The review went on and on, and each act was slower and more feckless than the last. When Georgiana did not appear, they shrugged their shoulders and skipped to the next routine. The audience was confused and drowsy, and some even lay down sideways or fell asleep altogether. Then came the finale. Every Connie knew what would happen. They had done it a hundred times before. Soon Cassius would stride into the ring, his tiger would jump through the hoops, and everyone would bow. A lackluster night would draw to a close, and anyone with hooch would drink himself to sleep. But that's not what happened. For when the firecrackers blasted, they shot sparks into the air, and through the smoke, a crescent of flame erupted in the bleachers. Yellow fire twisted down the wooden beams, leaping from the tinder. Clothing caught and blazed. A ring of flickering light circumscribed the center ring, and bodies flailed with panic. At first, the conflagration crackled weirdly, 
But the noise strengthened as the fire grew. The blazes thundered through the crowd, drowning out their shrieks of pain and terror. Smoke subsumed the light, adding to the chaos as people clamored for the exits. Children slipped through the bleachers and ran to safety. Women batted at their smoldering skirts. Backstage, Cassius took no notice. He was focused on his performance, and it was only when he ran into the ring, whip in hand, arms extended, that he perceived the screams, the flames, the clouds of smoke. He held his arms in front of his face, disbelieving what he saw. The inferno expanded before his eyes, devouring the tent, spiraling up the ropes, vomiting blackness into the ring. Cassius overcame his awe. He turned to flee. He squinted in the dark clouds, his throat burning, his eyes watery, his skin prickly with heat. And then he saw the tiger. The animal was engulfed in flames. Garlands of fire undulated from its body, and the coat of fur was patchy where the skin had melted and peeled. The tiger snarled as it charged, wrathful in its suffering. Cassius could only cover his face before the wildcat crushed him to the ground. Trapped beneath the tiger's weight, Cassius was doomed. The firestorm scorched his flesh, and the vengeful tiger tore his bones asunder. But no one heard his wails. I was lucky because the chair was old and brittle. I wriggled and pulled, stretched and contorted, and soon I'd broken off its legs. Once my gams were free, I charged the bars of the cage, shattering what remained of that fragile piece of furniture. I scraped the twine with my arms and legs, and then I squeezed between the bars and stepped into the night. By now, the big top was burning, and I sprinted toward that pyramid of fire. The gates of hell could not have been more awesome, and even from a distance, the heat was difficult to bear. Swarms of people ran screaming into the dark, silhouetted against that perfect wall of flame. A geyser of sparks spewed from the highest echelons, raining down on the refugees below. I had only one thought, to find Georgiana, to wrest her from this bedlam. I ran despite my broken face and aching limbs. I ran along the railroad cars until I recognized her doorway. I stomped up the steps, rounded the corner, and threw myself against her cabin door. And then I heard the shot. I collapsed sideways on the floor, and when I looked up, I saw the room was filled with ropes and pulleys. Georgiana was sitting in a chair, knotted up the same way I had been. But unlike me, a gun had been pressed against her face. 
On one end of the mechanism, a string was tied to the pistol's trigger. On the other side, a rope was tied to the door handle. By bolting through that door, I had pulled the rope, which pulled the trigger, which fired a bullet through my sweetheart's cheeks. I couldn't breathe. I saw the holes where the bullet had burst through her mouth. Blood spurted down the side of her face, and she writhed in mortal agony. That small bullet had shattered some of her teeth as well, and her sheets were stained with scarlet spray and dental debris. I stood up, but I didn't know where to begin. I tore the gag from her mouth, but that only let loose the goggled yowls and torrents of blood. With one hand, I pressed the kerchief to her face, and with the other, I pawed at the cords that bound her, desperate to untie them. And I cried. I sobbed and sobbed for the booby trap that I had sprung, for the pain that I had caused her, for the innocent people burned alive, for the fruitless crime I had committed for the savagery of human beings, the horrors we inflict, and the boy I could have saved, if only I had really tried. If only that were all. Surely we had endured enough. But this performance would have its encore and would I could have evaded it. I held Georgiana close as we descended the steps from the train car. The shock and pain had made her woozy, and her feet dragged alongside mine. All around us, chaos reigned. Mothers and fathers ran screaming from the inferno, pulling their children behind them or cradling babies as they sprinted for safer ground. I watched a clown struggle to rip the wig from his scalp, for the blue-colored curls had caught fire. Workers briefly formed a bucket brigade, but the hellacious heat reduced those splashes of water to vapor, and soon the men disbanded into the bedlam, for they knew that all was lost. I wish I could claim some heroics, some good deed I did for the fleeing masses, some weeping toddler I rescued from the scene, some fainted woman I revived and guided to safety. Even a rambling man desires to help and imagines himself brave in a time of need. But all I considered was our own survival. I was touched with primal fear which erased my nobler fantasies. Shadowy figures zigzagged around us, their faces greasy with perspiration, and each twisted face looked mad enough to kill. Add to that evil dream the cinders that snowed over us, smoking bits of fabric and the remnants of cooled sparks, burning tassels freed and dancing in the bacon air, and though I am loath to think of it, the ashes of incinerated corpses flittering down upon our living skins. 
Such nightmares seem too malformed to believe, much less to relive for the duration of a man's life. But then, it happened. I laid eyes on the queasiest image of them all, the moment I most wish I could scrub from my memory. Old Cletus lay on his belly. I recognized him right away, for he still wore his tuxedo coat and tails, his riding boots and gloves. But smoke rose from those tattered garments, and it was clear the ringmaster was badly burned. He choked and wept, and his pince nez dangled from his upturned neck by its delicate chain. I might have felt some justice in that moment, watching that vile little man suffer, groveling in the dirt like the bloated night crawler he was. But my pleasure was eclipsed by horror, for looming over old Cletus was the skinny frame of Eugene. Eugene, dressed in his rabbit costume. But he had torn away the hood and ears. Instead, he wore a mask, identical to the one he had sculpted in the boxcar, but small enough to fit his face. Its painted red eyes seemed to glow in the darkness, its jagged smile grimaced with demonic bliss. In his hand, he held a stick, the same stick he had used to pick up litter. The tool that had seemed so harmless was now wielded like a weapon. He lifted the stick high and then rammed its spike into old Cletus's back. The boy's body seemed to ripple with pleasure as the ringmaster screamed. Again and again the spike came down, piercing the man through his seared skin, even as old Cletus begged for mercy. Wordlessly, the boy inflicted his torture, his movements ever more dance-like as his glee intensified. I was transfixed. I might have hovered there all night. But then, Georgiana screamed. The pitch of her scream was bird-like, rising above the awful din. She buried her face and shoved herself into my shoulder, coaxing us backward, away from the monsters before us. Eugene looked up through the demon mask, and I knew that he had spotted us. That carven smile reflected the euphoria he felt now that he had found an audience. I mouthed his name, Eugene, but my sore throat was deprived of voice. Inspired by our presence, Eugene dealt his death blow. He grasped the stick in both hands, raised it high above his head, and then rammed it down into old Cletus's skull. The spike stabbed cleanly through the bone and brain, pinning the man's cranium to the dust. This violence hardly registered, for now Eugene began to rend his clothes. He ripped the false fur from his body. The seams unfurled, the fabric bundled down his figure. 
At last, he stepped out of the shed's skin. His body was streaked with red, and whether it was pigment or blood, I do not know. He wore only a ragged undergarment, and he hunched over like a wild primate, ready to spring. Even his fingers were curled like claws, and I knew that if we stayed, his hunger was now insatiable, and he would tear us to pieces with bare hands. I swiveled on my heel, taking Georgiana with me. We hobbled away as fast as our battered bodies would take us. The throngs of people dissolved, as did the heat, and soon we were lost in darkness, far from that carnival of fire. Time has intervened. The fire burned out. The blood congealed. We trudged our way to the Mexican border. We were penniless, but we survived the first leg of our journey. Not long after we crossed the Juarez Bridge, the revolutionaries laid siege to that city, and hundreds were killed in the ensuing battle. The banditos came down from the mountains. We were lucky to have escaped at all. I paid our way with magic tricks. We hitched our rides from town to town. A kindly doctor stitched up Georgiana's wounds, and in time they healed. Her cheeks have ghastly dimples, discolored like birthmarks. Some teeth have been replaced with wooden crowns. Georgiana hates to see herself in the mirror, but to me she is forever beautiful because we are both alive, and that is all that matters. I never confessed about the money. When we reached Louisiana, I pretended to find a hole where I had buried it, and I play-acted my anguish. I don't know if she believed the ruse, or maybe she doubted that I'd ever had the money, but at least I'd washed myself of sin. Most men should be so lucky. Months later, we arrived at Thibodeau's general store. The porch sagged more than I remembered, as did the roof. The paint was peeling everywhere. The place seemed smaller now, but it looked like home. And when my pa stepped out the front door, wiping an iron skillet with a rag, he dropped them both to the ground and grabbed me in his arms. He held as hard as he could, and he wept into my collar. My ma and pa were still alive, gray and slow, but still among the living. One of my sisters had passed away from the grip, and my eldest brother had vanished into the stockyards of Chicago, but the rest still dwelled close by. We ate suppers together. They celebrated my return. They welcomed Georgiana with open hearts. They drank and sang and played their instruments. I begged all their forgiveness, and they gave it, and I broke down into rivers of tears. Time has intervened, and now I own the store my father started. 
Paul spends his days in his rocker, playing solitaire with my abandoned pack of cards. Ma cooks gumbo and catfish on the wood stove. Georgiana makes deliveries on her safety bicycle, riding all throughout the parish. When people ask about her scars, she just grimaces and says we got into a fight one time. Enough years have passed that I almost pretend that circus never happened. We never bring it up in conversation because the memory is too painful and there is nothing left to be learned. My dreams have calmed over time. When I close my eyes, I no longer see that circle of fire consuming everything. I can almost say it was all an illusion, a trick of the mind. Except that something happened recently. Ten years on, I received a package. It was a cardboard box wrapped in silver paper. There was no return address, which made me wary. I took the package into the storeroom and closed the door and shutters. I tore the paper and lifted the lid. And then I stifled a gasp. Inside lay a mask. The surface was smooth and polished. It was painted in devilish reds and blacks. The nose drew into a point. The mouth and eyes were diabolically narrow. And beneath its nostrils flared a bristly mustache. I replaced the lid and set the box aside. Then I rifled through my old suitcase and dug out my old pistol. For all the suffering it caused, that Derringer is the only weapon I have. I went outside and I sat on the porch, holding the pistol in my hands. There's nothing I can do except live and work and love. There's nothing I can do but wait for him to appear. This concludes The Carnival of Fire. Written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music and sound effects, courtesy of and licensed by Audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting world of Uncanology, visit ElizabethCrown.net.